0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange.
1: All I could think about was being written into her life story.
0: She made up a story back What was the inspiration for the story? My
1: story is called Cigarettes.
0: What was the genesis? (laughs) I used to be almost dependent on voice.
1: I want to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) And the conversation starts.
0: Hello. Welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Brittany Purham will read poems from her new collection, Double Portrait, which was selected by Claudia Rankine for the Barnard Women's Poets Prize. Brittany Purim is a Jones lecturer in the creative writing program at Stanford University, where she was a Wallace Stegner Fellow. She's the author of The Curiosities and, with Kim Adonizio, the chapbook The Night Could Go in Either Direction. She lives in San Francisco.
1: Okay, so I'm reading to you today from a collection called Double Portrait, and every poem in the collection is a double portrait, and I think that's a term that we are familiar with in visual arts. We think about medieval wedding portraits. We think about the wedding portraits that are taken today. We think about um, lots of people's work, maybe David Hockney's double portraits um, you might think of, but in poetry, I think we don't necessarily think about Portraiture in quite the same way. So in this collection, what I was thinking about was the way that um, a speaker in a poem often turns toward an other and addresses that other, and how this is something that's really common in lyric poetry and is is part of the lyric tradition. And so in this collection, a number of different kinds of speakers address a number of different kinds of others, um, and the other does not even have to be a person. It can be a thing or an idea or a fear. So the titles are all double portrait, but they come with a number, and the number serves to house each of the poems within their series. So this is double portrait B-21. I want to kiss you now, I want to kiss you, then I want to kiss you again. I want to kiss you when your mouth is full of chocolate and when your mouth is full of wine, and though your mouth is not always mine for kissing, I want to kiss you, I want to kiss you in the morning before you've eaten one sweet bite of the apple left by the bed. In the French tradition, I want to kiss you when at night you set the apple very red by the bed. I want to kiss you and in bed when you say, this is the French tradition of lovers, I want to kiss you though I'm skeptical. I want to kiss you, and when you say I want to kiss you, I want to kiss you more. And while I'm kissing you, I want to kiss you again. And again, I'm sad, while kissing you, nearly weeping. While kissing you, you're so close to leaving. And when you're gone, I kiss you in memory. And even now, kissing you gone, gone even now, kiss even now, I'm kissing you. I miss you meteorically, metaphorically, I miss you merrily. Missing you makes me mistake other women on the street for you. Missing you, I miss my train, I miss your train, and when missing you, I miss the exit ramp. I miss you and there's an empty wine glass in my chest, and my chest thinks it's missing organs, so I miss my heart. I miss the way it feels to have a stomach. I miss you mornings, afternoons, nights. Missing you sucks away the day. Missing you I miss teach meter rhyme how to scan a line, missing you like like there's no tomorrow there's no tomorrow in which i do not miss you missing you makes me sweaty makes me mad is maddening i miss you and miss punctuate or don't miss missing punctuation altogether i miss you murderously i miss you mountainously metaphorically and actually i miss you most minutes before you even leave i'm missing you i want to kill you when i wake up I want to kill you all day, and after I kill you, I want to nap and wake up killing you again. When you're leaving, I want to kill you when you leave after kissing me. I want to kill you especially after kissing so good. I want to kill you with hacksaw, with chainsaw, with each cliché blade. I want to kill you by opening each time-release pill and they're releasing their true blue granules into your soda, killing you through bendable straw, killing you with these little hands, with my toes in your nose, my underwear in your mouth. I want to invent new ways to kill you. Who needs a hacksaw, a chainsaw? I'll kill you by communicating with God. I'll kill you by believing in God if I have to. I'll kill you off in my dreams, even if it means I have to kill off sleep. I'll kill you and keep you from leaving and kissing and leaving and leaving myself. I'll kill you. I want to keep you from harm, keep you from crying. I want to keep you confined to the bed. I want to keep you by keeping you close. I want to keep you close to orgasm. I want to keep you coming back. I want to keep your pectorals and shins, your middle-of-the-night thing for wheat thins and omelets. I want to keep you cooking, especially your pasta sauce. I want to keep it in Tupperware in the freezer. I want it to keep forever. I want to keep kissing you. I want to keep wanting you. I want to keep you wanting. I'll keep you drugged if I have to. I'll keep you company, I promise. I'll keep time with a tambourine to your trombone. Keep you cool in the summer. Keep fanning you with books. I'll keep warm in the winter with your breath in my hands. I want to keep your breath in your chest for longer than my breath will keep. I want to keep you kept. So many of these poems are concerned with repetition and that sort of obsessive patterning. If you are, like me, an obsessive thinker, you can get sort of one bit of language or one fear or one worry or one preoccupation stuck in your head and sort of repeat that again and again in a number of different iterations. And so poetry is actually a great vehicle for that and for formalizing obsessive thought in language. And so this next poem is patterned Patterned on a sonnet, which if you know anything about sonnets, you probably know it has a rhyme scheme and it has a sort of turn in the middle of the poem. Um so this one's a play on a sonnet where instead of the rhymed words, every last word is the same, but you'll hear that turn in the poem, that thing that I think gives the sonnet its sonnetness. Double portrait B fifteen. I don't know why it seems important to tell you now that it wasn't a hickey you saw on my neck in the exact cliched hickey location under the ear where hickeys have been hickeyed since the first hickey, when what you said was, you have a hickey, and what you meant was, from another lover, and you couldn't stand it, not the hickey or the other lover, and yes, it could have been another lover's hickey, but it wasn't in this case, just a hickey-looking patch of peeling skin problematic as a real hickey. I don't know why it seems important to bring up a little thing like a hickey, or why I want to tell you that my last hickey was weeks before, on my thigh, and from you. Except that I know whatever hickey you're giving your new woman now, you'll get a kick out of knowing this hickey story, our last story. Let's call it the fight of the non-hickey hickey that sucked in everything. So the next poem that I'm gonna read you is a pantoum. So that form, uh, the way that it works is by repeating lines. So every line is repeated twice and the poem makes a sort of laddering pattern. So you'll, you'll hear that particular kind of repetition in this poem and it's in three linking sections. And this is the last one I'll read from this series. Double Portrait B03. I try to want it, but I don't. When serving lunch, you give me the better sandwich. This is something I'll never have to question. We eat in perfect silence. When serving lunch, you give me the better sandwich. You pour the water and the coffee. We eat in perfect silence. We can sit together all afternoon looking at the snow. You pour the water and the coffee. You're deep inside your head. We can sit together all afternoon looking at the snow, not knowing how long ago we came or when we'll go. I am deep inside my head. The house is only borrowed, so it's content, not knowing how long ago we came or when we'll go. Someday, I'd like to get inside your head and dig around. The house is only borrowed, so we're content. There won't be time to plant a garden. Someday, I'd like to get inside your head and dig around. Some days, you'd like to wake up somewhere else. There won't be time to plant a garden. I try to want it, but I don't. Some days, I'd like to wake up somewhere else. This is something I'll never have to question. There won't be time to plant a garden. I call for you when I wake up. You don't answer. Some days, I'd like to wake up somewhere else, but not today. I put on my glasses. I call for you when I sit up. You don't answer the way you always do, every day but not today. I put on my galoshes. I find you shoveling the walk the way you always do, every day after a big snow. I find you shoveling the walk, the negative of a snowman after a big snow in your round, black coat. Like a Christmas movie snowman, you do a funny dance. I wear your round, brown coat. I take the second shovel. You do a funny dance. What can I do when you've done everything? I take the second shovel. I dig around a shrub. What can I do when you've done everything? We horse breathe beside the fence. I kick around a shrub. I want you to warm my fingers with your breath. We horse breathe beside the fence. There's nothing left to do. You warm your fingers with your breath. I want to make you sandwiches and coffee. There's nothing left to do. There won't be time to plant a garden. There's nothing left to do. No matter what I'm wanting, and wanting is a tricky thing, I want to sit down to sandwiches and coffee. No matter what I'm wanting, I'm glad to find you somewhere in the house. I want to sit down to sandwiches and coffee. I want the icicles longer on the gutter. I'm glad to find you somewhere in the house doing your after work doings. I want the icicles longer on the gutter. I hope for white bread, radishes, and butter. Doing your after-work doings, you're as happy as you ever seem. I hope for white bread, radishes, and butter. I want you to call me lover. You're as happy as you ever seem. You pour the coffee, then the cream. I want you to call me lover. I want you to kiss me on the cheek. You pour the coffee, then the cream. When we stir, we might be the same person. From whose lips the kiss on whose cheek. Wanting is a tricky thing. So I'm gonna read to you now from the first series in the book. And I'm gonna begin by reading a pair of guzzles. In this is a form that originated in Arabic. In classical Persian poetry, there's a repeated word or phrase that appears at the end of each couplet. And the English form of the guzzle is already sort of then a translation of these poems that are still practiced in many languages. Some of the other things to know about a guzzle is that in the English form, there is often the poet's name or signature that happens at the end of the poem, often in the last couplet, and that In guzzles, the tradition is that each couplet stands alone, and in some ways they could be reorganized or reordered in many different configurations. So um, that's the way this repetitive pattern works. And I'll read you two of these. Double Portrait F10. Today I am not vomiting blood. Tomorrow I could be vomiting blood It can happen after a sword fight or a sound night's sleep. You make coffee and boom, you're vomiting blood. You don't need a doctor to tell you it's bad news to be vomiting blood. I've seen all the second-to-last scenes in which the villain or tragic hero is vomiting blood. It doesn't matter how I feel or felt about someone once he's vomiting blood. This is how I know the villain and the tragic hero are the same man. He's the one vomiting blood. Tonight, with my warm feelings, I try to keep him alive, thinking, from far away, no more vomiting blood. It's time to say I love you and mean it to the man who's vomiting blood. Now I'm afraid it's almost over, I'm afraid. Who stays living for long after vomiting blood? I love you, I mean it. A daughter should be holding the bin to catch your vomit and your blood. Double Portrait f 0 -0. Every year, in various states, I get off the plane and look for my mother. On the other side of the security door, already waiting, is my mother. She's the kind of person who windexes the table directly after dinner. I'm the kind of person who leaves the dinner plates dirty. I am nothing like my mother. In her house, while I do my very best to be neat, she washes my clothes. In my house, because I can't be very neat for very long, I long for my mother. In her house, so that I will sleep more easily, she makes my bed with her electric blanket. I sleep more easily because somewhere awake in the house is my mother. In my house, in order to sleep more easily, I sing a few lullabies. For this to work, I have to sing with the precise intonation of my mother. She can paint a portrait in oils and fix dinner from a can of mushroom soup. She can fix the dishwasher's plugged drain and go for days without calling her mother. I can stay in bed for days without showering. I wear my bathing suit as underwear. What I cannot do is go for one day without calling my mother. On the phone, I'm likely to be grumpy, argumentative, dull, or silent. She'll often say cheerfully, Life sucks, then you die. Take it from your mother. We have this one thing in common. I think about myself almost all the time. She, too, thinks about me almost all the time. She says, because I'm your mother. When you have a kid, you'll understand. When are you having a kid? For the reasons above, I think it's better I never be anyone's mother. I know I'd better die before she does, but she says no. She'll never let this happen. I still somehow believe that the greatest power in the universe is my mother. When she's mildly annoyed, or when I've been away for a long time, she calls me by my full name, Brittany Titania, which is the way of every mother. There are certain words you can never say too many times, especially when crying. Mommy, Mama, Mommy, Mom, where is my mother? I want my mother. And I'll finish with one more poem from this first series. This one has similarities to the pantoum in that there are phrases that repeat exactly twice in the poem, so you'll hear that pattern of repetition here. Double Portrait F30. Everyone's writing poems for the dead, those who have gone missing, those who have gone. Everyone's writing poems for the dead, even without meaning to, even unwillingly, We crack the brain's back door for children, for lovers, who set their door swinging, who come back, even unwillingly, to tell us something we think we hear in her singular smoker's voice, when lately we believed in no voice but our own. We think we hear her beside us in the kitchen, lifting our hair, see how we've brought her home, see how she's brought her cigarette. We breathe in. The kitchen after this is predictably dark. Already the visitation is a memory. Already we suspect visitation is only memory, lighting the film in the chamber's dark. It's certainly a flash in our particular brain that captures our particular other, her hippocampal polaroid exposed no other way to certainly find her, our pain brain recalled her momentarily exactly. For a second, she was more ours than she ever really was, entirely ours. We go on recalling her consciously inexactly, exactly to keep her from going again. She who was, we'd like to believe it, telling us to say what we came to say. Don't go, you who've gone, you who were.
0: You can find more of Brittany Perham's work at her website, com. Hi, Brittany. Thank you for uh, sharing your work with us. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about your strategy for organizing the collection. You've spoken about um, not wanting there to be a set linear order. You want to encourage readers to experience the book in a variety of ways. And where did that concern or desire um, originate?
1: I think, you know, I'm interested in poetry sequence and series. And often when we have a sequence of poems, we expect that we're going to read them from start to finish and they're going to make a sort of whole that might be um, narrative. It might not be, but in some ways it's going to travel in one direction. And I just didn't see these poems doing that. I was sort of more interested in collection and in the way the poems could um, refract and reflect off of each other in different patterns and I started to see that you know in the writing process they all the poems were just called double portrait and then years later after I had sort of written them and could come back to the poems I could see that they were working in series where I could collect them in these like four configurations that would let them speak to each other and make different kinds of holes than a single poem would make. So that's how I came up with the sort of series idea. And I had always known that the the poems themselves were linked to visual art. And so I was thinking of, like, what is – can a poem be, like, an analog for a painting? Can a poetry book be a kind of analog for what we experience when we see things in a gallery or in a room?
0: So you um – um have spoken a lot about working with forms like the Guzzle and the pantoum and the Sonnet. And as a complete non-poet, I'm curious as to the relationship between like form and content as you're developing a poem. Is it, I want to write a sonnet or is it, I have this impulse or material, what form could it, could it fit into?
1: I think it can go either way. And I think that like ultimately I would think when the poem is finished, there should be sort of no distinguishing form and content. Like it should be the same thing or two parts of the same thing. Um, But I think as a generative technique, it can go either way. Like one is if you're a person who likes to free write and um, spends a lot of time just collecting words, you can start to see the patterns that emerge there and then see if those patterns align with recognizable patterns that you have stored in your brain or that you've read. But the other way to generate is to generate toward a form and be like, what if I tried a sonnet? What is a sonnet? What's sonnet-y about a sonnet, right? Like, what am I interested in that? So I think for generative practices, the the form can come first, or the sort of like generated language can come first. Um, But I think sometimes you just sort of like luck out. And as you're sort of trolling through the language, you're building the form side by side with whatever it is the form is saying. And I think that's why um, the poems in this book are certainly some of them are received forms, forms we've seen. That's because poets are great. there's so many great forms for obsessive thinking and for this kind of patterning. And poets have been concerned with just this way of thinking for so long. So there's already so many things to choose from, but then there are some poems that can't be expressed in that form or those kinds of forms. And so then it becomes a matter of sort of invention. And I think that's actually a harder task. I think it's much easier in some ways to have a kind of like a form is like sort of like you have a house to put the poem in you have something you have a scaffolding you have something to go toward and in a free verse poem or in a poem that has its own kind of repetition or formal elements you have to build that and figure out what that is and that's sometimes a harder thing
0: and where does a poem typically start for you
1: in a bit of language i think probably it's a, it's um a bit of obsession a bit of and it's often a musical obsession like if there's some kind of um sonic movement in my mind i feel like that's something that i can sort of pick up on and in repeating it in my brain sort of churn something out from that. So it's often a bit of language that starts it um, one line, one half of a line, one sentence, and then something can open from that.
0: I was listening to you read the poem um, that riffs on kiss, miss, kill, mm-hmm. keep, this sort of four faces of love poem. Yeah. And I may have heard you read that before at some point, but I was listening to it now, and I was it just struck me how in the third... Part it the which I believe is the kill. It, it sounded as if it, like there was this emotional peak, and then the last section felt almost calm. And I wonder, in terms of sort of generating and conveying emotion in a poem, is that an emotion that you are currently in the grip of? Is it something that you just remember distantly and you can be very analytical about it now?
1: I think it can be either thing. Um, I think with the kiss, kill, miss poem that you're talking about in the four sections, I was interested in sort of making that experience for a reader. Like, what does it feel like to pass through the sort of different phases of different kinds of obsession? And in order to do that, I found exactly the thing that you were saying. Like, where's the high point in the poem or the crescendo in the poem? Where's the quieter motion of the poem? What does that sound like and feel like? And that was very much a matter of crafting toward that because the poem has to sort of be that experience. Like if I told you about that experience, like we're doing now, we're sort of talking through it, but it doesn't convey the experience. So the poem has to figure out how to hold that. And I think like for that one, I wrote the, I think I wrote the kiss you part first. And then months later, I started, I wrote another part using the form that I had found for the the kiss you part and so it it didn't all happen because I was experiencing that emotion at the time in fact I was like experiencing things through time and also just like started to be interested in that formal patterning and then I realized okay I can make something out of this that hopefully makes that experience feel real at the moment of the poem as though the speaker whether that is me or something that's drawn from me or not me at all as though the speaker is in that moment. like How do we make that moment for someone else?
0: That's something I feel with a lot of your poems, is that they feel like they're being generated in the moment. And I think that has something to do with the way they riff on language and return to certain words over and over again.
1: I wanted to feel that way, I think. Like, I didn't want, I mean, what I didn't want the poems to feel like were sort of like dead or reprocessed information or feeling or um, reprocessed experiences that I was asking a reader to um, either like go through narratives of my life or go through invented narratives that had no sort of heat behind them but were just like about what happened, right? Like I wasn't interested in that at all. I was only interested in like how do you make an immediate moment in, because lyric poetry, that's what it does so beautifully. It makes the immediate happen on the page. It it Instead of moving through time, it opens a moment of time and that we can sort of enter and inhabit. And I think that I was interested in making that feel immediate as though someone were just speaking it to you, as though you could hear someone's in, internal monologue, which I guess is like in some ways – feels maybe like an antithesis to the the formal aspect of it or at least the forms that we know like how does that fit in with a sonnet right but I think that actually fits in with a sonnet like in a great way like it can feel so immediate so
0: yeah immediacy and this kind of emotional directness that feels weirdly unencumbered by your narrative or by any narrative it really feels like this voice in the middle of the night you know jackhammering or way or something yeah. like that. Um, and I'm, I think I'm so used to hearing poets read and they give the, the whole thing about like, well, this poem was inspired by when I was in Scotland and I saw this old lady and it made me think about this other thing, you know, and, right. and getting that sort of narrative into which to understand the poem. and And these poems feel sort of mysterious and denuded. They're just given to us and we don't need to know I love that.
1: That's such a nice thing to say. That's like one of the nicest things anyone has said in a question about the collection or just in a thought about the collection, because I mean, that's what I hope for. Like, I don't want them to be dependent on another story or be dependent on me at all. I mean, I think that hopefully we write poems that sort of carry everything they need into the world and are not they might be strengthened by the poet reading them to you or talking to you about them but hopefully they sustain their own life in some way by feeling immediate and the poems that I love best are poems that do that through time like where you don't know the circumstances anymore you don't maybe you don't even know anything about the writer anymore right but like that poem it feels as though someone's talking to you in the moment I mean I think that's the poetry I love best.
0: So that's a natural transition to me, asking about poets that have been formative for you, either in your overall body of work or in this book in particular.
1: Yeah, I think for this book in particular, but also overall, and it's just exactly what we were talking about, like Edna St. Vincent Millay's sonnets. And I don't know that she's read that much anymore, but her, she's a master of tone and her immediacy in the way those sonnets are voiced and come alive for you on the page, um, I think. Is amazing. Is like one of the best things in poetry. I love her sonnets so much, and that was certainly a big influence for this collection. And and she's someone that I've loved over time. I was also in this collection doing a lot of reading of what artists had, to, visual artists had to say about their own work, and and reading sort of Bacon on you know he was talking about how he felt like what is what is what do you have to do to understand creation. It's like you hope that you can, like the ideal thing would be to make a, a room full of paintings of a subject matter that's treated serially, right? Because like that's how you best understand creation or something. And Picasso talks about being more interested finally in the movement of his thoughts than in the thoughts themselves. And so I was doing a lot of reading of artists and the way they talked about their process and their work for this collection, because I was thinking about that. Like how do you treat experience serially how do you understand the movement of a consciousness or of a set of speakers rather than just like one individual moment of it so
0: i think the last question i wanted to ask is about revision um again as a as a prose writer i don't i don't know how one revises poetry build this character more i mean it's not about that
1: It's all language work. I mean, I revise by reading aloud and then changing as I read aloud and scribbling things out and then reworking in that way. The thing with a poem, especially when you have figured out the form that you're working in, whether it's a received form or an invented form, is that when you pull on one word or one stressed syllable of a word and and pulled on that, everything else is going to unravel or unravel around that. And so I think it's sort of like going toward the sound of the, the expression that you're trying to get onto the page and seeing what you have to sort of tug on to make the other things sort of come alive. So I just read my work again and again and, you know, cross things out and add things in that way. It's, it's, By the time I get to the revision stage, it's really a sonic process and then a sort of clarification of, um, like, what's the poem up to? Like, is it doing the thing that it should do? Is it providing the experience? Is it clearly doing something in the world? And the poems that aren't doing that have to go out of the collection, you know, have to go away, have to go in a drawer.
0: Does it ever enter into that process like your, I'm sure it must, like your own, vast knowledge of poetry and as a teacher of poetry are you also is there ever a point where you're thinking like oh well so and so does this and so I need to tilt it in this way or
1: I think that yeah with teaching poetry I think one of the things that I often think about in terms of revision is that at a certain point you can get into a poem so far that you can no longer revise it except to go towards sort of like craft right and so you're sort of like making these aesthetic or craft changes to try to clean it up, right, instead of really getting in there and trying to dig around in the poem. And I think when that impulse takes over, when it's like I realized I could make the poem – prettier or cleaner or and I could sort of do those things in craft I know it's time to put it away like either it's done or and it's gonna go out into the world or it's done and it's gonna be thrown away because it can't go any further it's just gonna be cosmetic after that so that certainly happens for me and also I just think like With the question about, like, what other poets are doing, I just think, like, let the influences in. You know, if you can hear echoes of people, like, there is one poem in here that definitely borrows the rhythmic patterning of Malay's Recuerdo. um, And you can hear it. And I hope you can hear it. If someone knows that poem, like, great. You'll hear that, like, I just stole that patterning, right? And the poem's nothing like it if you didn't know the poem her poem, you would never notice it, but if you just like listen to the recuerdo again and again, hopefully you would pick it up in my poem too. And I think that hers is much better, but <laughs> I'll take what I can get.
0: <laughs> well, you're pointing people toward her now. Thank you so much for being with us today on Off the Page. This is the first episode in our new series from Off the Page. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. Off the Page is produced by Jackson Roach, Megan Kalfas, Alec Glassford, Aparna Verma, Sienna White, Aaron Wu, Adesua Agbonil, and Kathy Wong. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablaza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.